this isn't part of my sermon, but yesterday, or the day before, I actually had a birthday. And um, thanks, man. Thanks. I just had a time of prayer yesterday. I, I turned off my email and my, me- my texts and all that sort of stuff, my messages. And I was just overwhelmed with just uh, a reminder of the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, and the provision of God. And sometimes we forget, don't we, you know, how good it is to come here and meet as his people and to sing praises to him and hear his word and hear him speak into our life. Um, like I said, that's not part of my sermon or anything like that, but I thought it'd be great to share that and we take that for granted so easily, don't we? But how good is it to be here as God's people? I'm going to pray to that end and then we'll share. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, thank you that you continue to speak for us, speak to us. Uh, we recognize that our hearts are so hard and resistant and cold and distant and removed from you so often that we let circumstances cloud our view of you, that sometimes we get stuck in bleakness. But break into our hearts with your spirit, we pray. Move in us, change us, shape us and renew us. Remind us of your goodness and your faithfulness. We ask that you work powerfully and expect that you're going to work powerfully in us tonight. Amen. James gave a bit of a recap on what we're talking about, this idea of we are. You know, we are the church. We are. And the truth is the Bible uses a whole bunch of metaphors to kind of talk about what it means to be the people of God. Okay, the Bible uses a whole bunch of symbols and metaphors and images to talk about what it means to be the people of God. I thought I'd sort of rattle off a few. So the first um, that I kind of reminded, there's probably a whole bunch I could go to, but one of the really common metaphors is that we are a body. Okay, the people of God is a body. It can do things, right? So you've got arms and legs and hands and eyes and feet, and the Bible actually describes it in that way. And so it can, it can achieve different things. It has different functions, functions that it can achieve. It's a body. You also hear about the, bo- the people of God being described as a building. It's being built up. And again, that has different connotations, doesn't it? It has different emotions and different things. We're not finished. We're being built up. We're being changed. We're different yesterday than we are today. And the Bible also talks about the people of God as like a people, but almost like an ethnic people. Originally, they were an ethnic people, but in the New Testament, that changed, didn't it? But they're still spoken about in those ways. People of God. But one of the most powerful and, I think, kind of emotive ways that God talks about to describe his people is a family. A family. That's what we're sharing about tonight. We are the family of God. And if you think about that, it's kind of positive emotions and negative emotions. What do I mean by that? Well, it's positive in the sense that family is associated with love, right, and acceptance, with belonging, with being part of something bigger than ourselves, being part of something that has meaning, that has purpose. That's family. But also family can be negative. And some of us have negative emotions when we think about family, basically because of our history. And the truth is, when we think about family, our family knows about our pettiness and our bodily functions and the parts of our being that are not pleasant. But even the parts of our soul that aren't pleasant, our family knows it, don't they? We can't hide stuff from family. We can't put these things away. And the thing is, you can't actually choose family. You can't say, I'm sick of being a foscate. I mean, I guess legally you can do that. I can't say that. The truth is, I'm always sort of part foscate, aren't I? It's really interesting that the Bible uses this picture to describe the church of God. We are family. 
Okay, a whole bunch of places I could have gone to in the scriptures. I chose Deuteronomy. Um, I'm going to be jumping to a few other different places as well. But just so you know where I'm going, I think the Bible is clear, and well, this part of it anyway, is on how the family acts. So what does the family do? What's the behavior of the family? Secondly, I'm going to talk about, just get from my notes here, what does the family hear? How do they listen? What do they listen to? And lastly, what does the family share? So what does the family act or how do they act? What does the family do? What do they share? Okay, I'm just going to read from verse 1 of the chapter that James read out here. So what does the family do? What are the, how do they act? Look what it says here. It's interesting to see what he says. These are the words of Moses. So these are the commands and decrees and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you and to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that your, uh, you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and all his commands that I give you, so that you may enjoy long life. Now, just in case you're not super familiar with the Bible up to this point, there's a lot of things that have happened before this. So basically, the Israelites kind of were a people group, then they went to Egypt, and then actually became enslaved in Egypt. Then God, through a fellow called Moses, who's actually speaking these words, uses Moses, God uses Moses, to deliver the people out of Egypt. But it's quite amazing. Moses goes up into this mountain to receive kind of like the revelation of God, the law of God, it's called. And even when Moses is up on the mountain, the Israelites are down the bottom worshipping a golden calf. In other words, worshipping a God that isn't God. And so that's just after they got out of Egypt, just after they've been freed from slavery. And they wander around in the desert because of their sin and their rebellion. And here, what we're reading here, they're about to enter into the promised land. And Moses is giving this kind of explanation. Some people might say it's a sermon about how they're supposed to act. And I think his main point is you are supposed to be different. You are supposed to be different to the people around you. You're the family of God and you are supposed to be different. Look at his emphasis here. Verse 1. These are the commands and the decrees and the laws your God directed me to teach you. You're to be obedient to those. Verse 2. It repeats it. It's important that it repeats it. Going kind of halfway through the second chunk here. As you live by these standards, by keeping all these decrees and commands that I give you so that you may enjoy a long life. And we see this pattern again and again and again in the people of Israel, the family of God. They're so tempted to live like their neighbours. Now, in our multicultural sort of society, we think, oh, they're just living out their life. You know, they're kind of exploring religion and God in the way that they want to do it. But if we read the pages of Scripture, it's actually incredibly dark. It's actually really, really messed up. So if you read the Old Testament, what does these sorts of alternate sort of worship to God look like? Well, we could talk about things like child sacrifice, talk about things like slavery, oppression of the weak and the vulnerable, exploitation of other people groups. This was what was going on in other people groups at the time. And this was affecting the way the Israelites were acting. And God's saying, no, you are to be different. The family of God is to be separate. The word it uses is holy. Notice how it repeats. It actually sort of covers all the areas of life. And it's supposed to be again and again and again. Look what it says here. I've sort of broken up into three categories how this is supposed to play out. So the first way it's supposed to play out, these laws, these commands, is in our home life. Look what it says, verse 7. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. 
In other words, your family, your family life, your home life, the way you raise your children, the way you love your children, should be shaped by these laws that God has given. That's your home life. Even our kind of, I don't want to use the word professional life, these guys were probably farmers, but I don't know, their job, their work. The second part, look what it says here, verse 8. Tie them as symbol on your hands. This is the way you made your living, right? So it's not just supposed to affect your home life, but also your professional life. And thirdly, your public life, verse 9. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. These are the things that everyone sees when they walk past and they associate with this person who's living there. We can relativize this. We push back on this in our kind of accepting culture. But God gave his people clear moral, ethical, behavioral guidelines that he expected his people, his family to live by. And we shuffle that aside, don't we? We love to. I was reminded of this in a conversation. Um, I was chatting about a really old play called Jesus Christ Superstar. I'm not really sure my age. This has come from like the 60s and the 70s. Has anyone ever heard of Jesus Christ Superstar? Oh, we have. I don't know if you've seen it. It's actually, I'll give you a bit of a recap of what it's about. It's not, I don't think it's really Christian, by the way, in case you have that perception about it. And it's put to tacky kind of 70s rock songs. But it's a basically, the idea of Jesus Christ Superstar, it's about a guy who did a lot of good things, Jesus, but he started to believe what people were saying about him. And he started to buy into this myth. And Judas, who's kind of like this social justice guy, says, actually, Jesus, you're getting out of hand, and that's why Jesus was killed. So that's the sort of plot of Jesus Christ Superstar. And it's interesting, as we reimagine the kind of moral code of God or Jesus or what we see in the Gospels, we take away the moral imperative, don't we? We love to think of Jesus as being just that, a good guy. Acceptance and love, that's all he spoke about, right? But if you read the Gospels, it's all the way through. Moral imperatives, you're expected to live in a certain way. It's all through the Gospels. It's all through what Jesus taught We love to push that away. We love to diminish it. We love to sort of put it to the side. And Jesus did teach acceptance and love and grace, but he had high expectations, didn't he? Very high expectations. If you're hanging out with your friends, if you're at the bar or Northies or whatever, at a coffee shop, and you look exactly like your neighbours, that's a problem. The family of God is supposed to be separate, to be distinct, to, set, to stand out. It's the first thing. The family of God also hears. What do I mean by that? What, do I even, what am I trying to say? I'll explain. So the family of God hears. Read from verse 4. Look what it says here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I'll say that again because it's such an important verse here. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The second part here, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We go, what the heck does that even mean? Why is that so important? Bear in mind, this is repeated all the way through the Old Testament, and Jesus himself said this a couple of times. So it's clearly important. What's he trying to say? Why this idea of oneness? Well, if you worked and lived in the religious systems of this time, the idea of the divine, that was that it was many. You, know? the, you had a different God for, for the agriculture. You had a different God for sexuality. If that wasn't performing for you, if you had, you had a different God for the sun and the moon, for finances, and if a part of your life wasn't working out, what you did was you actually went and appeased that God in some way. And so you make a sacrifice or you give money or you give something. 
And some of those sacrifices, like I alluded to before, were really quite dark, right? That's the kind of cultural stew in which the Israelites lived. And yet here, the contrast is clear. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. He's unique. He's separate. He's holy. And that is to shape the people. He is separate. He is holy. Look what it says here at the start of the verse. Here. So don't imagine. Don't feel. Don't vibe it. Don't dream it. Here. Here. This is what God was doing to shape his family. We don't get this because we sort of come to God in our own way. And God is actually defining himself. We don't get to define him. We don't get to shape him. God is clear in his revelation. You listen to him. He doesn't listen to you. And this is a tension for us, right? This is a tension for us. We really struggle with this because we love to imagine God in our own image. We love to think that God's going to think like us. And when we see something in the Bible that maybe we don't agree with, we go, oh, I don't want that. I'm shuffling that aside, right? That doesn't sort of fit into my imagination of who God is. That's not what we see in the Bible, is it? And the truth is, no relationship works that way. No relationship. I'll give you an example. Um, My brother got married about five years ago to a lovely lady called Meredith. It's a funny old-fashioned name, but she's a, a lovely, lovely lady. But the thing is, my brother lives in a place called Griffith, which is, I think if you just drive straight there, it's about a seven-hour drive, but, you know, you take breaks because it's not safe to drive for seven hours at a stretch. And so it probably takes about nine hours to get to my brother down in Griffith. Anyway, before we met Meredith, he was dating her for about two years, at least. I think it might have been like three years. And we heard that there was this girl on the scene and it was getting serious and blah, 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 blah. And the truth is, I could have imagined Meredith in a whole bunch of ways, you know. I imagine Meredith drinks wine and reads Harry Potter. I imagine Meredith laughs at old dorky episodes of Seinfeld. But it's not until you actually meet her that you can actually claim anything about who she is, surely. And it's quite presumptuous of me to say, oh, I imagine Meredith to be like this or like this or like this. No, you meet her. In a sense, she reveals herself to you, and that's when you understand who she is. And it's exactly the same with the Bible. We imagine God, and oh, I imagine God to be this and this and this. Actually, we've got to see what the Bible says. And I'm just speculating, but if God exists, if there's a creature, sorry, not a creature, a being such as God, surely he's going to disagree with us in some ways. Surely when we read the Bible, it's going to annoy us at times. And what do we do? Why would we imagine that God is going to think and look like someone raised in our context? Why? Why would he look like an ancient Egyptian or an Icelandic Viking? And see how we suddenly put ourselves over God? What does it say here? We hear. He talks to us. He defines himself. We don't get to define God. We don't get to do that. Here um, at Establish, we talk about this. We have our values, don't we? Um, there's a thing. I got, I got this off the website where it talks about... Can we get the picture up? It should be there somewhere. Basically, that we are unashamedly and unapologetically Bible-centered, right? So we're looking to see what the Bible teaches, not what we feel, or what, not what we imagine, but what does the Bible show us about who God is. That's part of our value. That's what we want to do here as part of God's family here in Cronulla. What does the Bible say? That shapes the family of 
God. We hear. We hear. And lastly, we share. What do we share? Look at verse 10. We share. The family of God shares. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build. Verse 11, houses with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat it and are satisfied, be careful. I think this was chopped off the reading, that's okay. Be careful that you did not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of slavery. And so what do we share? We're actually sharing a common story. It's a story of grace, right? It's a story of grace. He's grafting them. That's a fancy word, but he's pulling them into the story. Look what it says here in verse 10. When the Lord brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Now, it's likely, this is kind of like an ethnic melting pot. There's likely people who maybe kind of, in terms of their lineage, maybe didn't directly sort of come from the Israelites. And he says, you have your fathers, almost like spiritual fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's grafting the people listening into the story of God with his people. And it goes on here, uh, verse 11, houses filled with all kinds of good things. You didn't provide, you didn't earn this stuff. This is grace. Wells you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat, you are satisfied. And look what he says here in verse 12. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is really important because in a very kind of logical and rational sense, God didn't bring these specific people out of Egypt. He brought their fathers. But he's saying, no, this story is your story. The story of the family God is your story. It's funny how this works in our modern culture. I've heard of an example here. I was struggling to think about how to explain this. I talk about Arsenal all the time. I'm going to do it again. But um, it's a similar thing. Like, I follow Arsenal. I'm a proud Arsenal supporter. That's a guy called, I can't remember his first name, but his last name's Abamyang. Say that slowly. I don't know. I, don't know. I think that's how you say it. But he's a great player. He's, um, I think he's sitting on 30 goals or something like that. Anyway, I support Arsenal. And Arsenal's a strange thing. When you support a football club, you, in a sense, become part of that story. And so Arsenal are known because they have this rivalry with the team called Tottenham. Can I get the next slide up? And that's a picture of them in fisticuffs, right? Now, I came to Arsenal as probably a 20-year-old. I didn't grow up in London. I have no idea why Arsenal and Tottenham hate each other. I have no idea. Yet, as an Arsenal supporter, I love when the Gunners beat Tottenham. I love it. But I'm not from Tottenham. Why would I have anything against Tottenham? But in a sense, I'm sort of grafted into the story of Arsenal FC. It's not my story, but I'm pulled along. Their story becomes my story. And I'm passionate about the things that they become passionate about. Hopefully, it's a reasonably friendly rivalry, by the way. It's kind of similar with God. We're pulled into a story that's not our own. We're pulled into a story that's so much bigger than us. It has meaning. It has identity. And the family of God defines us as such. I was reminded of Hebrews, the first chapter, or rather the first verse of chapter 12, where it sort of talks about a similar sort of thing. We're pulled along the story. So Hebrews 11 talks about the great story of faith, of God's people responding to him in faith. And all the figures, David and Isaac and all the figures, and it goes through it. And this is how he concludes. Verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw everything, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. So who he's talking, he's talking to these people who are suffering, who are in hardship, who are going through difficulty. And look what he says here. We're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. You're part of this story. You're part of the family of God. This is who you are. How does that play out in your life? Do you understand that? Do you apply that? Do you think, you, as, do you think of yourself as being a small part in a much larger story, a much larger family? Family of God. Family is so important, isn't it? Family has its stories, it has its history, it has its things to say that are good and things to say that are bad. I was um, reminded of this recently. I was up in Foster. Um, we used to go to Foster. This is the Foskett sort of history a little bit about my um, story in terms of me, my family's story anyway. We used to go to Foster once a year. And um, it just so happened that I was in Foster about three weeks ago. And I was staying in this hotel and it was about 100 metres from where we used to stay as a kid. And um, I sort of walked down there just because I'm a nostalgic kind of guy. And I, and I sat across this house that I used to visit probably 10 times from about the age of one to about 10. And I actually kind of found myself getting kind of emotional. And you think, Tim's not an emotional guy. I actually am. But I got really, really sad because I was thinking of all the stuff, all the stuff in my own family that's happened between that point, I probably about year seven was the last time I was there when I was like 11 years old, to now. And there's good things that have happened. Man, there's been a lot of horrible things as well, really difficult, really painful things. And I just started to reflect. I reckon I sat there for around an hour and a half. Now, that's kind of weird, isn't it? But isn't that the story of family? And as we think of our own family here at Established, we can think of the joys and the wonders and the things that have happened and the things that we can celebrate. But man, there's difficult things as well. There's painful things, there's frustrations, there's heartaches, there's disappointments. But that's the way that family works. That's the way that family lives out. There's times when we want to throw plates across each other from the kitchen. There's times when we get frustrated. There's times when there's conflict. But this is family. I don't think the Bible's accidental in its use of this image. A family of God, a family who acts a family who hears God speaking to us, shaping us, changing us to be like him, and a family that shares a, a common story, the story of the gospel, the story of God saving us. Let's pray as we finish up. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for this reminder. Thank you uh, for the weight of holiness that we see in Deuteronomy, of a God who was separate, a God who was holy, a God who was magnificent, who still condescended to reveal himself to Moses and to a sinful, broken people. And thank you that that founding of that family is a family that we are still a part of today. Remind us that we are part of your family. Help us to live that out with authenticity, with trust, and with faith. And we ask this humbly and remember this in Jesus' name right now. Amen.